If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? It is summer, and what better to do with summertime than focus on getting in shape and getting your health in check. Best way to do that is with Angie Niska at Rise Nutrition, who sponsors all of these wonderful Jesus Never Ran podcasts. You can find her on Facebook at Rise Menominee. That is Rise with a Z. Hey, everyone. Great to be with you today. I am Matt Kinzer, the host of this podcast. And here's the thing. Kids all over this country are going back to school at the beginning of September. So I thought, hey, as we're doing this podcast, maybe we'll do a little bit of school as well. A little history lesson today as we talk about the fact that it hasn't always been this way. Whatever influences we grow up with, whatever traditions we're surrounded with, they tend to become very comfortable for us. I think you can probably relate I grew up Catholic, and one of the comforting things about growing up Catholic is that you could go to any Catholic Mass anywhere, and it would pretty much be the same. I you know, I could go anywhere, and I knew what to expect. I knew all the prayers. I knew the order that was coming. I knew when to genuflect. I knew when to kneel. I knew when to stand. I knew when to do the sign of the cross. All very much the same no matter where you were. Now, don't get me wrong. (laughs) This also made growing up Catholic extremely dull because there's a reality to the fact that it's just the same thing over and over again. I guess I'll call it dull and comforting at the same time. You know, and honestly, I think Catholics really knock this out of the park. But really, every denomination has their own form of this. Even when we think about the evangelical church, which we talk a lot about on this podcast, as modern as they market themselves to be, you know, they're pretty much doing the same thing. We get really comfortable showing up. We drop off the kids. If you have kids, you always grab that cup of coffee because a great church has a great cup of coffee. And then you head on into the the main space, the sanctuary, whatever you want to call it. There's going to be three to five songs up front, you know, really depending on how spirit-led your church is. And most churches, honestly, they do really the same rotation of 20 or so songs that are popular at the time. So you'll likely recognize at least most of what's being sung, no matter where you are, no matter what church you walk into, if it's an evangelical church. And then after the music, there's likely to be some announcements, and sometimes they get a little creative with how they do them, but you know, you're going to hear about the small groups going on, the church picnics, whatever. 
and then there's going to be an offering and with the offering there's going to be some special music or maybe a video of some sort this leads up to the sermon which almost always starts with a cute story or a joke then the pastor gives his version of (laughs) what i would say is one of five sermons that you'll hear preached in most of these churches there's usually just a handful of sermons that get preached in different ways over and over and over. And then at the end of his message, he prays to end and the music team comes up usually while he's praying in the altar call days, which still exist in a lot of churches, the band would play lightly and the pastor will try to get people to raise their hands and accept Jesus. The Pentecostals, they like to get people up to the altar for prayer. So they're asking people to come forward as that worship team is playing underneath. Everyone finally sings that last song, and then you're off with the rest of your day. And again, you'll find that general template in most modern evangelical churches that you go into. It's this this sense of routine, I guess we'll say. And I remember when I was on staff at one of these churches, which I spent a lot of my life on staff at evangelical churches, I would try to mess with the order. I'm a bit of a creative at heart, and so I'd mess with this order, and... (laughs) people didn't like it like they never liked when I would mess with the order put the music at the end and you know people would just leave before it was all over or maybe you start with the sermon and people would complain that they weren't ready for it as if like the music was some sort of spiritual stretching or something like that and then skip the altar call and you might get run out of town or in my case run out of youth speaking circuits and never get invited back which is definitely a part of my story so The reason I share this is because we're all creatures of habit. Even those of us, myself included, who actually really enjoy change, we're still creatures of habit and we we love what makes us feel comfortable and ultimately we like what makes us feel safe. We do this not only in our church service order, but we also, and this is the space we're going to go into today, we also do this with our belief systems and with our theology. We learn something which, as we're learning it, we're told it's the truth. And so we naturally assume, kind of blindly, that this is just always the way it has been. So then we get really comfortable inside the belief that we surround ourselves with. We not only envelop ourselves in that belief, but we also tend to surround ourselves with people who believe pretty much the exact same things. To wrap this little intro up, we go to a church that makes us feel comfortable because we know what to expect. And then we believe certain things that make us feel secure. And again, we call it the truth. And then we insulate ourselves with like-minded people so that we feel a sense of safety. However, and that's a big however, however, the real truth, if you'd like some actual truth, is that these beliefs these structures and these theologies are all fairly modern and this isn't at all how it's always been people who warn others about questioning belief systems often refer to it and this is almost holistic they often refer to it as a slippery slope i've heard those words so many times and i'll never forget speaking to a pastor about being lgbtq plus affirming and he looked at me and he said yeah but if i change that belief what will be next it's a slippery slope 
And it is. I mean, it's not untrue. So I guess the question is, do we want to feel comfortable in our belief systems or do we actually want to learn where they came from to understand if they are good or even godly? And when I started questioning things about faith and Christianity, this was a number of years ago, I naturally assumed that when people came across interesting information that was contrary to what was being taught, I just assumed that people might actually want to hear about it. If I thought it was interesting, I just assumed other people would find it interesting as well. When I discovered that there's another way to think regarding things like women in ministry, the LGBTQ plus community, heaven and hell, things like that, and so many others, I just thought that people would be as intrigued as I was. I thought if they were believing a lie, that maybe they'd want to know about it. Even if they thought maybe they were believing a lie that they would want to know about it so they could look into it a little bit deeper. I could not, <laughs> I could not have been more wrong. Like if I've ever been wrong on anything, I was really wrong on this. Not only did they not want to talk about it, they also didn't want me talking about it at all either. As a pastor once said to me, your thoughts are affecting the unity of the body of Christ. Well, isn't that convenient that my thoughts are the ones that are affecting the unity, not his? Because, you know, most of my thoughts are pretty inclusive in nature. So hypothetically, they should result in actually a stronger unity as opposed to the beliefs of this particular pastor, which were in my mind very exclusive and very clear about who's in and who's out. So now I'm really thankful, extremely thankful to be outside of those systems looking in. And now I have the freedom to explore spirituality in the way that makes sense to me. And as it turns out, seems to make sense to a lot of you. In Wisconsin, where I live, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, kids are heading back to school actually this week. My child's actually going back to school for the first day today when this podcast is getting released on September 1st. So I thought it might be fun to do a couple very small history lessons to take us all to school a little bit, just to show you kind of where I'm going and what I mean by all of this. I don't like this show to get very long, so just to be clear, you're only going to be getting a bird's eye view, and I really only have time to tackle a couple of theological thoughts and ideas. It was pretty difficult to pick which ones to use, but I'm just going to go with the two that I personally believe have been the most problematic, at least in our modern church history. The first one is the idea that the Bible is inerrant, which means without error. This theology is problematic because it opens the door to the idea that if the Bible says something, then it simply is so. And that very easily can cause me to exclude people because at the end of the day, like it is what it is. That's what it says. So if you don't fit, you don't fit. The other thing that I want to tackle today is the other issue that I really enjoy talking about, which is the concept of hell. 
We've dealt with both of these theological issues at length on the show, so feel free to dig back a little bit in the archives of this podcast if you want to hear some other amazing guests give their two cents on either of these issues, as well as a lot of other issues. But today, we're not going to do that, but instead, we're going to simply show that the modern evangelical way of looking at both of these topics is simply not how it has always been viewed. There's been different thought processes behind this. There's been a progression to get to where we are today. It just hasn't always been that way. So today, I'm not arguing what is right or what is wrong, simply that it hasn't always been this way. Starting with the Bible being without error or inerrant. The first thing to note is simply that the main justification for the holiness of the Bible or the inerrancy of the Bible comes actually from quoting the Bible. In the letter that we now call 2 Timothy, which is written by Paul, it says that scripture is God-breathed. We can interpret that specific statement in several different ways, but that's not the point. The point is that you can't prove something by quoting it. It's like me saying, like, my buddy Jim is the best guitar player in the world. I know that because he told me so. It's just not going to stand up. It's not good logic when you're trying to prove a point. Also, if this were allowed, it actually would only apply to the Old Testament as the New Testament, when this was written in that letter, was not even written or organized at least for a couple of hundred years yet. So in Jesus' time, the scriptures of the Old Testament were actually expected to be interpreted in different ways. So there wasn't like this uniformity of how it should be interpreted. Most rabbis, which Jesus was one, most rabbis had varying views on the interpretation of scriptures. And based on their thoughts and their beliefs, they would gain followers who would agree with the way that they would interpret these scriptures. All would still worship at the temple and come together, but there was this beautiful expectation of a healthy differing of opinion. Imagine that. So Jesus was not in the midst of a culture that looked at scripture like many Christians do today. He would even play around with it. You know, I mentioned that he was a rabbi, and so he would take his own interpretation of scripture as well. He would say things like, you've heard it said, and then he'd quote a portion of the Old Testament, and then he'd follow that by saying, but I say something to that effect, and then he'd add his own kind of interpretation of what that is leading towards. Or another time when he obviously, what we call the great commandment, he takes two commandments from the Old Testament, puts them together, and makes them really the primary focus moving forward. So again, even Jesus as a rabbi is taking his own spin on scripture. So the idea of inerrancy really finds its roots, my opinion, in the Protestant Reformation, which was in the 1500s. This is the time when Martin Luther, who was Catholic, he broke away from the Catholic Church by quite literally nailing his issues with the church on the door of the church. I mean, 
Martin Luther had some issues for sure, but that was a pretty badass move. Like me, I have like maybe four to five main issues. He didn't just have four to five issues. He had 95 of them and he wrote them down and he nailed them on the church door. Even though this is where we find the roots of the idea of inerrancy, Martin Luther himself did not completely buy into the concept. We can see that in some of his writings that he's even struggling with portions of the Bible being correct or how they work together and things like that. Those who formalize the belief system of inerrancy, or I guess it wasn't even inerrancy at this point, but those who formalize this belief system were a part of the, the Protestant Reformation, kind of bringing it all together. And they started with three main principles and then eventually two more were added and here's all five the first one was scripture alone or sola scriptura was the actual word so scripture alone number two was faith alone number three was grace alone and then four and five which were added a little bit later were christ alone and glory to god alone so those are kind of the five main belief systems or the five main tenets, we'll call them, of the Protestant Reformation that were gathered together. And scripture alone was the first of those. Again, though, even though sola scriptura was the foundation on which errancy was built, there's actually little evidence to suggest that it was treated like many Christians treat it today. There is a lot of evidence surrounding, again, like healthy debates regarding contradictions in the Bible, not necessarily explaining away the contradictions, which a lot of people enjoy doing today, but instead actually wrestling with flaws that are in Scripture. The question still remains, when did we get to the point where Christians treat the Bible as without error and treat it as God's word is the phrase that's often used, which is a whole nother conversation that we'll get into another time. So this didn't happen 2,000 years ago. It wasn't 1,000 years ago. It wasn't even 500 years ago. Not even 100 years ago did this theology, we'll call it, get put into place. It was a concept that actually was first outlined in an article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. Boy, that sounds like an exciting society to be a part of. And this article came out in 1978. That's 43 years ago. So it hasn't always been this way. Inerrancy in the context of how many evangelicals think is not even as old as I am. All right, now let's tackle the idea of hell. I told you this is bird's eye view, right? We are just grazing the surface. <laughs> so tackling the idea of hell, as most of you realize, the modern evangelical rendition of hell is that it's a place where God sends people who do not believe the right things. If you don't believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, hell is your ultimate destination, and it's a place of eternal torment and punishment. That is what an all-loving God does with people who don't love him. <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard not to smile when you say it because it's just, it's just that insane. Good news. Good news is that this too is a pretty modern interpretation of the idea of hell. Before we start, it's important to note that hell 
is not a concept that's unique to Christianity. It actually shows up in some shape or form in the vast majority of religions in our world, actually throughout history as well. And many of the Jewish and Christian concepts of hell seem to actually be borrowed, at least in part, from other ancient religions. All right, we're going we're gonna to start way back on this one. Let's start around the 6th century B.C. This is when we begin seeing writings showing that the widely held belief among Jewish people is that hell, in this case the word Sheol, was simply a holding place for people who died who were ultimately waiting for a time when they would be in the presence of God. So it's not a place of torture or torment, but instead simply a holding place as souls await their eventual destination. For you Catholics out there, or former Catholics, think purgatory minus the needing people to pray you into heaven part, and it's a place where everyone was thought to go after dying. So in that context, 6th century BC, it's just the place of the dead is another way to, to say it. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, this is still the widely held belief. Although there certainly were religious leaders of Jesus' day who were starting to get awfully good at the concept of scaring people into performing sacrifices and into giving money by simply spinning the concept of the afterlife into their favor. But there is really no apples to apples at this time with the modern kind of evangelical concept of hell. But we definitely, as I mentioned, we definitely are starting to see some roots growing of the idea of using scare tactics so religious people of power could get what they wanted. And that is something that started a long, long time ago and is still going strong to this day. An interesting thing about Jesus and his teaching on hell is that he never actually talks about it directly. So you would have to stretch out your interpretation of scripture to get to the thought that Jesus is actually talking literally about hell. Instead, he always uses the concept or the idea of hell as a way simply to make his point. And if it was how many of us now think it is, again, this kind of modern interpretation of hell, I feel like Jesus would have had the decency to cue us in a little bit more. Like if hell is really this place of eternal punishment and torture, and if we have to believe the right things to avoid it, I'm hopeful that Jesus would have been a decent enough human being to cue us in on that so we were very clear of what we had to do to avoid hell. But instead, he uses the word Gehenna. So again, Old Testament, we're usually seeing the word Sheol. With Jesus, we're usually seeing the word Gehenna, which is the name of a valley where garbage was burned. Thus, the imagery of fire. Also, we hear Jesus reference the gnashing of teeth when he's talking about hell or using hell to talk about something else. And this would have been something that you'd have experienced if you went to this burning garbage dump because it actually refers to the animals that would fight over the garbage that was being burned. So he's using imagery that everyone would understand to make a point. By the time we get to the aforementioned Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, the Catholics were perfecting the method of getting what they want by scaring people. 
So much so that they would send guys out on horseback to communities all around Europe to sell indulgences, is what they were called, as a way of getting people out of purgatory. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, purgatory is this place. It's not heaven. It's not hell. It's a place where you go where you weren't great, but you weren't horrible, and people can pray you out of there and get you to heaven. So selling indulgences was a way for people, if you bought them, was a way to get people, your loved ones, out of purgatory or to get your past sins forgiven. Like you're literally paying money for forgiveness of sins. I mean, that's, that's what the Catholics were doing at the time when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis up to the door. This is also the same general time period when the famous poet Dante created this imagery of hell in his poem, The Divine Comedy. It's actually where we get a lot of the imagery that we think of when we think about hell. This was then immortalized by the artist Sando Ponticellus. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but he did a painting titled Dante's Inferno based on the Divine Comedy that the poet Dante wrote. And again, this was the primary beef that Martin Luther had. So we see this pattern emerging throughout history of people, again, getting what they want, especially people of power, getting what they want through scare tactics. Specifically at this point, we're starting to see more and more about hell, but wait, just you wait, because it gets better. And in this next part, you'll start to see exactly where we get this modern evangelical view of hell from. In America, in the early 1700s, there was what has been referred to as the First Great Awakening. This is a time in early America where some Protestant pastors and evangelists started really getting people riled up. Sometimes it was in their churches. Other times they would travel around and set up large gatherings in the middle of small towns. They would get loud. They would get excited. And their goal was singular to convert the listeners to a Protestant belief system. One of the leaders during this time was a pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and he preached a sermon at his church on July 8th, 1741, that set the stage for how Protestants viewed hell from that point forward. And the title of this sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In this sermon, at one point, he refers to humans as spiders dangling over a fire, hanging by a single thread that God could at any point cut, sending the humans into the flames. I mean, how's that for a feel-good sermon? Pastors and evangelists started putting two and two together after this riveting sermon by Jonathan Edwards, and they discovered that the best way to make converts was by scaring the hell out of them. And since the goal, still today, is to make more converts because that equals more people in the seats, more money in the bank, more power in the hands of pastors, the same scare tactics are still being used to this day. But again, that isn't actually how it's always been. Why is this important? Why are we doing this podcast episode? Well, it's very simple. When belief systems or theologies hurt people, we need to figure out where these belief systems and theologies came from so that we can look at fixing them.
It's like a person who discovers that, I don't know, they're lactose intolerant. So what do they do? They stop putting lactose in their body because they want to be better and they want to feel better. So if our beliefs are harming others, we actually need to diagnose the problem and stop doing the things that are causing the hurt. Stop just turning a blind eye and actually get to the root of these issues, of these theologies, of these belief systems and see if there's a different way of looking at them. So since we went to school today, I feel like maybe I should give you a little homework. My background's in education, so I feel like it's homework time. So here we go. Write down some of your core beliefs, whatever they are. Maybe write down three to five to 10 core beliefs, whatever you consider your core beliefs, and then ask yourself why you believe them. And also ask yourself when you started believing them and who taught these things to you. Now, hopefully you'll have a great, well-thought answer about why you believe the things that you believe. But for any that you answer, I don't know, or I've just always believed that way, I challenge you to dig in a little bit and see if you can discover where that belief came from. I'm not asking anybody to change their beliefs. I'm simply suggesting that it would be beneficial to understand where you got the belief systems that you have. Thanks for listening. Until next time. If you'd like to support this podcast, make sure you subscribe to it, give it a five-star rating, and write a review.